Good day, ladies and gentlemen. I just had one of the most fascinating interviews of my life. I was uh, given the pleasure of interviewing Father Carlos Martins, who was an exorcist of the Catholic Church, and he was speaking about a new book about the famous Pope's exorcist, uh, Father Gabriele Amort. And uh, it was a great interview, and uh, we had a lot of technical difficulties, which probably just means that the devil didn't want the interview to happen, but we were able to, to bang out an interview, and I think you're really going to like it. And uh, say hi to Jack. Jack. Hello. Um, anyway, as always, check the links in the description for uh, my books. Uh, also in the description are the links for Father Martin's podcast, The Exorcist Files. Many fascinating stories. And just before we get to the video, let's say thank you to our sponsor, the TKR Store. Go to thekennedyreport.com. And visit the TKR store to see our new products, Kennedy's Choice Beard Oil. You can use this on your beard to help with alleviating itchiness, dryness, and irritation of skin. And don't worry, no animals were used in testing this product except for myself. Use Kennedy's Choice Beard Balm for a softer, healthier, manageable beard that is made with natural ingredients. And trust me, I know a thing or two about beards. Visit thekennedyreport.com and check out the TKR store. The links for this are in the description. I'm not sure if it's actually a teaching, maybe it's, uh, maybe it's a small tea tradition, but I do hear that if your beard uh, is well taken care of, that um, the devil's actually less likely to, to annoy you. I'm just kidding, but uh, enjoy the show. Good day, ladies and gentlemen. Very happy to have a special guest today, Father Carlos Martins, who I didn't know was Canadian, so there's a little connection there, which is always nice to make. He's an exorcist with the Catholic Church. You may know him from The Exorcist Files, a very well-known, famous series right now on the reality of exorcism. And he is a, an exorcist in North America and has been selected to help speak about a new biography that's been translated into English of Father Gabriel Amort, the famous Pope's exorcist. And uh, Father, thank you for joining us. You're most welcome, Kennedy. Good to be here. So you are from Kitchener, Ontario originally, is that right? Well, originally I'm from my mother, but I was born <laughs> in Kitchener, Ontario. <laughs> okay, so I taught, um, I, li I grew up in London, Ontario, and um, I taught at St. Michael's Catholic High School in uh, Stratford for a while, so I was okay. in the, the area there, so that's, that's fun, I didn't even know that. Um, okay, so we're going to talk about the uh, biography of Father Amorth. But first, um, clearly you were selected to discuss this book. So how did it come to be that Tan chose you um, to be the spokesman for this book? Yeah, so I've, I've worked with Tan before on, on different projects. And I think what, what, what attracted me to them to, to, to speak on Father Amorth is I've been an exorcist in North America and in Italy as well. I've done exorcisms in Rome. Uh, I used to state my, my Rome office used to be in the Scala Santa, which is the Church of the Holy Stairs. And it was Father Amworth's teacher, Father Candido Amantini, that was his base of operation. So he, he was the teacher of, of Amorth and my, uh, my Rome headquarters was there for several years. Uh, and so I, I got to be around the father uh, amantini was was long dead by the time i got there but certainly 
uh, his the, the the culture there is is very uh, is very thick with uh, Father uh, Candido's presence, and he, mm. he's revered there. His cause for canonization is well underway in the church, and in fact, his tomb uh, has been moved into the the church of the Scala Santa, the Church of the Holy Stairs. Uh, so the the fact that I had a connection with the teacher of Father Emworth. Uh, and I, I didn't I didn't know Father Amworth personally, but I certainly knew the circle and was around the scene and knew him by reputation. Uh, so the fact that I had been working with the Vicariate of Rome on on different projects and different capacities in this area, uh, Tan reached out and recruited me to be the spokesman for this book. And Father Candido, he was the uh, exorcist for the Diocese of Rome before uh, Bishop, or Father Amorth, is that correct? He was. So he he was the, uh, so Father Amorth was was the successor of Father Candido. So Candido was his teacher. And, you know, it's a funny thing because those of us who knew Father Amorth, uh, and he's become very famous through his books, through his publications, uh, the first big one was, uh, it's been published in English as An Exorcist Tells His Story. Uh, yeah, right. It's one of uh, Ignatius Press's uh, best-selling uh, volumes. Uh, so we think about him because he was an old man. He died in, in his 90s. We think about him as having been the exorcist for decades. And he was for decades but not as long as what people think. He, he was appointed an exorcist at 60 years of age. That's so right. That, you know, that um, surprises people because he had to start from scratch, having no experience whatsoever in battling the demonic until that age. Uh, up until that point, he did fulfilled various roles. He was a brilliant communicator and being a member of the Pauline order, he really exhibited the charism of communication and uh, effective teaching. Uh, the, the charism of the order seeks to communicate the gospel using the various means of technology that are available to us in, or, in order to do that. And so he did that very well, very gregarious person, well-spoken, great talker, great communicator, affectionate person, profoundly acute sense of humor uh, and just a, a fun playfulness that he had. And lo and behold, uh, the vicar general for the Diocese of Rome taps him to be the exorcist. So let's, yeah, let's go through a little bit of the early part of his life. So I, um, I'll put the book on the screen here um, when I, when I uh, edit this after. Um, but in the first part of the book, he, it explains how basically he was formed in the uh the years leading up to the first world war because he was born in 1925 or second world war excuse me so he lived through the war had a lot of activity during that and then his seminary formation kind of happens in that time of the sort of 50s kind of after the war into the just before the council um when i was reading that i thought wow this is a man who came of age during a war and during a time of great moral and spiritual upheaval in italy and I was thinking that would have uniquely prepared him for his role as an exorcist in our culture today. What, what did you say to that? Oh, uh, absolutely. Uh, he, you know, he went through a lot of suffering and he saw suffering and he, he became a warrior during those times. Like he, he really, he wanted to help people, 
he saw that just the, the vast amount of human suffering and, and just the, the abject poverty that people face, poverty, not just material poverty, but poverty in terms of information and catechesis mm -hmm. of the faith, so that their source of hope was 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 questioned, was 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 vacant in in so many ways. Uh, and so he was determined that he was going to do everything he could to exert the strong presence of Christ, both in terms of teaching and communication and in alleviation of material poverty. It's interesting you mentioned the the dearth of formation because people think Italy, you know, before, especially the 60s, you know, this is probably like some Christendom golden age, et cetera. But my my known no God rest his soul, I think he was born in 1927. Uh, my mom uh, was born, I think, in 56, came to Canada late 60s. And, you know, she remembers all the old ways and stuff, but they weren't really formed. I mean, my no no kept his faith his whole life. And, you know, he was an old Italian Catholic. So there were a lot of pictures of the Virgin Mary around and stuff. And that was great. And he had a faith. But it wasn't something he could really communicate. It wasn't really, uh, it wasn't like they were making them memorize the St. Joseph's Catechism. Let's put it that way. Um, so that's kind of sobering for those of us when we look at the difficulties we face in the church with catechetics. It's actually something that's been the case for a long time. Yeah, for sure. You know, we, we kind of take it for granted in North America. We, we have a culture, we have an an evangelical Catholicism that has a strong presence here, that we are right. ready to provide an apologetic. We are ready to provide a reason for the things that we do, uh, the, the, the matters that we believe in. And, you know, in Italy, uh, and indeed for the whole, for all of Europe, my, my, my family is European, uh, the faith is a center piece of the culture. But there is that there is that lack of formation whereby they don't know why things are the way they are. There, there's a there's you know of course they love the Bible and believe in the Bible, but they know very little about the Bible by by and large. So that the, we have a very different faith experience coming here from North America. We we Catholics we were the minority here. We always were the minority. And in Italy and the rest of Europe, uh, Catholicism became the dominant religion in such a way that there was no competition. So there was no, in a sense, no, no, no reason in, in many quarters for an improvement of that. And so we see that uh, in, we, we saw that when all of a sudden Hitler comes in and, and, and attacks Europe and the, the people have a faith to lean on, but that faith in many ways was paper thin and the, the thickness of the beams of the house were, were no more thick than than toothpicks. Hmm. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. So he is a priest. He's ordained somewhere around 19 uh, in the mid 50s, if I'm not mistaken. And um, then he's an active ministry for about 25, 30 years, really. Um, and then there's a moment in 1986 when he becomes an exorcist and he wasn't expecting it. Would you be able to describe that for us? Sure. Yeah. So, um, so the vicar general for the diocese of Rome. So, of course, uh, a vicar general is is a, a bishop's right hand man to whom a bishop delegates ordinary power. In other words, he speaks with the authority of the bishop and makes executive decisions. So, and, and using different lingo, 
he would be the bishop's executive assistant. Mm-hmm. And so canon law affords that, and even even inter- the pope will also have that. So the pope, in addition to being the universal shepherd of the church, is also the bishop for the diocese of Rome. But in order for him to fulfill his many duties, he appoints, since, since the 15th century, uh, the pope appoints, appoints his own vicar general for administration of the diocese of Rome. And so we call that the cardinal vicar. Uh, or vicar general of his holiness. And that uh, vicar at the time in the mid 80s was Cardinal Ugo Poletti. So I I do work with relics and and during that time, uh, uh, Cardinal Poletti, uh, he he was prolific in the number of relics that he issued. So I I know him by his work very well. Uh, One of the characteristics about him was that if you were a priest, if you were a priest within the archdiocese, you could call on him either at his office or at his home anytime you wanted without an appointment. And he would he would receive you and he would greet you. And this was part of the great thing about Poletti. He knew that sometimes a priest just needs another priest to talk to. Uh, he, he just needs to bounce something off or it might be a, some, some loneliness or, or some, some kind of grief that, that he was anxious to help you lift up off your shoulder. So Father Amorth one day just walks into his office and uh, and he asks uh, Father Amorth, uh, do you know Father Candido Amantini? He said, sure, yeah, he's the passionist. He works across the street. He's one of the exorcists. He's the main exorcist for the diocese. And uh, so Cardinal Poletti pulls a sheet of paper out of his desk uh, drawer and starts writing a note. And then he stamps it and he hands it to Father Gabriel appointing him to be Father Amantini's successor. So that is how it began. There was no introduction. There was just a letter of appointment handed to him. Uh, and so he was, at this point, approximately 60 years of age, and he had zero training. So the, the letter provided for a period of training uh, that would last as long as necessary, uh, which in reality lasted six months. And from that point on, uh, he was the exorcist for Rome. I'm trying. Yeah, I was trying to find the uh, spot here about this uh, because I wanted to actually read it if I could. Um, just the nonchalantness of it, but um, oh well, I can't find it here. But um, what what um, this vicar is saying to him is that you know there are so many souls who are dealing with possession, and basically this exorcist, Father Candido, just can't keep up with the demand. Um, exactly. Yeah, so that's it seems to be that they sort of picked Father Amorth out of necessity, but that also means that, okay, there's many priests that they could choose from, but they chose Father Amorth. And when you look at his history and his theological views before he was an exorcist, he would have called himself a Mariologist. You know, he had a deep devotion to Our Lady, especially Our Lady of Fatima. Um, Maybe this is why he was picked for an exorcist. Maybe you can elaborate. But why did they pick Father Amorth to do this job over someone else? Yeah. So, I mean, everything I could offer would be simply a conjecture because I couldn't possibly know the the mind of of Cardinal Poletti. But why would why would Father Amorth be a fitting choice? Because of his devotion to Our Lady. He had a profoundly, deeply uh, lived spiritual life. So he was 
somebody who took prayer very seriously. He took poverty of life very seriously. He had, he, he lived in the same room uh, within the, the monastery where he lived in Rome, very small, modest room. He had four small shelves uh, where he could put his books and they were always full such that if he got a new book, he had to make a decision to get rid of one of his old books. Oh, wow. Uh, so he just lived a, a, just a poverty of life. Uh, but at the same time, uh, he was a person who enjoyed what God provided. So one of the one of the characteristic things about him that very few people know is he had a penchant for chocolate ice cream, uh, chocolate <laughs> gelato. Uh, he loved gelato, it. Yeah. And uh, the old ladies who kn knew this, uh, with whom he worked, and and they would bring him uh, a tub of gelato that he could have at home whenever he wanted. And so he he appreciated that very much. And um, so he had this poverty of spirit, but a joyfulness in life, a very well-balanced life. He was a person who just loved people. And, you know, I, I don't think Father, I don't, I don't think uh, Cardinal Poletti realized that the kind of, the, the kind of engine that he was installing in the car for the Diocese of Rome in terms of exorcism, but he was installing something incredibly powerful because Father Amorth conducted exorcisms every day, seven days a week. Uh, even Christmas day, he would be conducting exorcisms. So it was wow. something that he did constantly. And he did so because he had a heart for the gospel, a heart for God's children who were ensnared by the devil, and he was really willing to work. And so he he operated this, this schedule, this punishing schedule, uh, up until very close to when he died. Uh, you know, he had good health until shortly before his death, and he worked at that capacity until the end. That's incredible. That's like, yeah, I'm thinking about his background. I mean, he seems like he was uniquely formed. I mean, living in the wartime that really toughens you up. Like I look at my Nono and I mean, basically until he deteriorated in the last year or so of his life, I mean, it was, it's like he would have preferred to have a, a full-time work schedule, you know, like that was just the way that he was made. And when that, you know, it's almost like he died when that stopped, if that makes sense. Right. Uh, we had to, we had to tell him to slow down, so to speak. And, um, and then also having this background as a lawyer, um, you know, my opinion, my impression of the devil is he's kind of a legalist. You know, he tries to, uh, it's either, it's either legal loopholes to loopholes to make you feel bad about yourself or legal loopholes to make you feel good about something you shouldn't feel good about. <laughs> you know, right. the spirit of law, Christ is always admonishing the Pharisees and, you know, even using terms like Satan and your father is the devil and so forth because of their legalism. So someone who is holy and a lawyer seems to me like he'd be uniquely uh, providentially formed to deal with this very black and white reality, but without losing the spirit of the, uh, of the priesthood. Does that make sense? Yeah, it, it does. And the, the devil is very much a legalist and father Amorth in his books. And he, and he wrote many of them. Uh, he was a, he's a prolific writer. Uh, he taught that legalism that, uh, the, the, you know, the kind of the, 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 the devils, if you will, this is not his expression, it's mine, but, they're they're all they're all like teenage boys you know like the teenage boys will say you know like well you said you said i had to be home by midnight but you didn't say that i had to be home by midnight if 
uh, I was running low on gas and I had to get gas and then I got hungry after I do that. And then I had to go get, you know, so there's this, this kind of legalism that, that you would expect from uh, teenage boys, this could be, and, and they pounce on it, right? They, they pounce on it. And uh, the job of the exorcist, and, and, and I can attest to this, is you're undoing the, the legal apparatus that the devil has erected around the victim. I've never heard that before, undoing the legal apparatus. Could you go into that a little bit more? That's fascinating. Yeah, so, so what the devil is going to do is, so, so the devil needs an entryway. Uh, he needs a relationship. And a, another way to phrase that, or, or another an analogy, is, is he needs you to open a door to him. And that, that door is either open through wounds, so trauma that uh, you've experienced, and typically childhood trauma, uh, leaves you vulnerable in certain areas, right? Leaves you with wounds. And just like a fly is attracted to a wound, the devils are going to be attracted to that. And so the, the, they're going to want to feed on that wound. They're going to be very attracted to it. And, and they start setting up their... Uh, relationship with you and get you deeper and deeper and it, where you, whereby you give them greater and greater rights. The other uh, the, uh, the other type of wound is sin, either personal mortal sin, uh, what we call generational sin, uh, a sin covenant made by a member of the family that gives the demonic rights to exist in a family line, whereby the, the, the presence of evil kind of replicates itself through the generations. And the last one is, is what I call transferred evil, mm. transferred sin, curses, hexes, spells, and so forth. So as an exorcist, I come into a scene and I'm looking for these four areas of wounding, trauma, and then three species of sin. When the devil makes an entryway through one of those, He's going to want to hook as many of the others in as possible. And he puts you into series of conundra such that you, you, you make a decision to do this. He leads you into something else. And then in order to protect that sin and hide that sin, he, exp he threatens to expose the other. And so in order to protect both of those, you take on a third. And so eventually you end up owing the mafia more and more money, so to speak. You end up with a tighter and closer relationship uh, with the enemy. And so as an exorcist, I've got to come in. First of all, once I've established that this person who's in front of me is genuinely afflicted by evil and is not just experiencing mental illness or or is is not faking it for that matter because there's plenty of people that do that because yeah. they love attention and uh that's maybe a different form of mental illness but regardless yeah, right. you know we've got mental illness and we've got the demonic and so my job is to is to parse each one and and to see what is present here in this individual that's presenting himself or herself to me in this concrete situation and so what uh what what happens is once I've established that, okay, the demonic is here, I need this victim to be as honest with me as possible so that I can start undoing the lies, undoing the shame, and undoing the, the covenants that, that the devil has, has made with this individual. Now, the devil isn't going to just sit there and, and play nice and let that happen. In a case of possession, he's going to manifest and he's going to cut off communication between myself and the victim. And so at that point, that's when we use 
uh, things like the rite of exorcism. That's when we pray, we use holy water because it ends up being a battle with the devil. And this battle with the devil is, you know, for one third of Father Amorth's life, this is exactly what he was doing. That's interesting. There's a couple of things I want to ask you about there because I was fascinated. So the first one, um, how do we distinguish between this idea of a generational sin uh, and the fact that at baptism, there's a, like an exorcism that takes place on the individual soul, but there's still something potentially in the family line. How does that sort of play out? Right. So so a generational sin is a sin made by an ancestor, the effects of which remain present in the family line. So uh, let's establish the fact that these kinds of things exist. Uh, well, uh, the original sin exactly. is a generational sin. Right. So we baptize and, and everyone needs baptism to enter the kingdom of heaven simply because the the covenant made with our first father, Adam, that he made with evil. And that so the, the effect of his action is visited upon every one of us. But we have other examples in the scripture. Uh, so, for example, we have when when David sinned with Bathsheba on on the rooftop and she conceived his child, uh, he then responded to that very difficult and delicate situation by uh, mm. by orchestrating that that her husband, Uriah, would be slaughtered so that uh, David could then marry her and then the sin would be hidden from people and no one would deduce the fact that there was a, this adulterous affair. Well, God knew that there was the affair. And so what, what happened is he struck the baby dead as a result of that of, of, of that great sin of murder following the sin of adultery. So the baby suffered the effect for his father's sin. Uh, we have also in the story, in the account of uh, when Moses approached Pharaoh and uh, Pharaoh issued the death threat against Moses. Well, what, what he did in effect was condemn his own people such that every firstborn son, based on the words of Pharaoh, was struck dead during the Passover. So it, they never committed any sin. It was it was Pharaoh. It was the political leader of the country, the king, but they suffered the effects. So generational sin does exist, and so you know we just we as as exorcists, what we look for is a pattern. What is an uncanny pattern that is there and just makes no sense? And I'll and I'll give you one example. Um, sure. So in, in my show, my uh, my podcast, The Exorcist Files, I had on as a guest in uh, the last episode, uh, Tammy Comer, who is the wife of John Mark Comer. John Mark Comer is one of the highest profile Protestant pastors in the United States. Uh, he started uh, one of the largest megachurches uh, that is um, uh, that is functioning, and he's a prolific author, author himself. Well, his wife uh, who is a, an evangelical like himself a, a, uh, in the Protestant tradition, she had a debilitating illness. And just through a series of fortunate events, was tracing her family tree and realized that uh, there was a pattern there that was just uncanny. So starting from her great-grandmother, every firstborn daughter uh, had either a debilitating illness or 
died very prematurely in life. Everyone else was fine, but though, but every firstborn daughter was not. So she sought prayer for that and luckily found someone. It, it wasn't me. I met her after the fact, but uh, found somebody who prayed with her and who took authority over it. And sure enough, there was a demonic manifestation of that. And it, it all came from a curse that was leveled by a by a woman upon her great-grandmother. And why? Because her great-grandmother uh, took on a man. Uh, I mean, she never did marry him, so we'll call him a boyfriend or a lover, who was already married to a woman, and he had abandoned her and her family. Uh, so in retaliation, she leveled this curse against her husband's mistress. And that, that curse caused a tremendous amount of suffering for a lot of people until it was broken. And in, in the case of Tammy, the moment it was broken, she could see better, hear better, taste better, that, that she just didn't exhibit the extraordinary symptoms uh, by which for years she had been seeing doctors to no effect. So how, okay, this, how does the curse work? I've always wondered that, you know, we hear about them. I mean, uh, is it magic? Is it uh, is it a compact with the devil? Is it psychological? Well, how magic it is just another word for a curse. Okay. Um, so the way a curse works is that God made the universe as a moral universe, right? There is right and there is wrong. So that's one principle. And the other principle is the fact that words have power, right? The universe was created with a word, right? We pronounce the words of the Trinitarian formula and as water is being poured over it, over it, a person, and all of a sudden, that person becomes the church's newest saint. And so not only original sin is, is washed away, but if there are actual sins the person committed, and in fact, within our Catholic faith, we, we, we certainly believe in, 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 in purgatory and, and the need for purgation, the need, the need to, for the soul to be, to be loosed from his, its deformity, that is also taken away in baptism in an instant. Uh, but not just the pouring of the water is effective. There has to be that formula. There, there has to be the verbal uh, action done. So we can use words for good or we can use words for evil. And in fact, it's telling that the first person to ever curse in the Bible was God himself. And he did so in Genesis. So With Cain. Uh, when the snake... Uh, oh, tempted same. Eve, and, and and there was that whole domino effect. Uh, he begins with cursing the serpent, and then he curses Eve, and then he curses Adam. Uh, and in fact, there was a curse put on the whole earth in the sense that the effects of the fall affected the entire universe. Now, the difference is when God curses, it's medicinal in nature. God right. never curses merely to to for for punitive purposes in order to punish uh, there's a medicinal aspect to it uh, but the devil of course through his words uh, he teaches for people to curse punitively or for selfish reasons for sinful reasons and in so doing when a person utters a curse which is which is really uh, the opposite of a blessing on somebody our words can bless our words can curse when they engage in that aspect of cursing that gives 
the demon's permission to insert their agency in the action. Hmm. Okay. That so makes any a lot of sense. time a curse is done, uh, whether through a verbal formula or some action, the same thing is happening in every context. The effect, if there is any in the curse, is done through the agency of demons. There's no magical power in the universe. There, there are no forces of nature that uh, the witch doctor can kind of tap into, and he's just learned how to engineer these things. You, every All this evil is being done through the agency of demons. Okay, this is that's good. This is good. This leads me to my next question, um, because in the book um, that, by the way, ladies and gentlemen, you can find the link for that book in the description to the video. I'll make sure I put it there. Um, you can get that from Tan Books. And uh, this is a quote from Father Amorth. He said, some possessed people say they have received a curse, and they also say by whom it was cast and in what way, according to them, it can be overcome. But it is important to be careful that in doing so, they do not turn to magic or sorcerers or others rather than resorting to the ministers of the church. One must not resort to any form of superstition or other illicit means. Just how dangerous, I mean, it's dangerous enough, I guess, in a sense to be cursed, but it seems to me like that'd be kind of piling on by going to one of these occultists, et cetera. Do you see that often in your ministry where someone had something oh. bad happen and they tried to find a, a, another way that just made it worse? Absolutely. Absolutely. And then, you know, because of course the, the witch doctor, the sorcerer, whatever they call themselves, they, you know, it's, it's in their best interest to develop a long-term relationship with you because you right. are the means of their financial livelihood, right? None of them are going to do any of this free for you. And so the more dependent they make you upon them, uh, the, uh, the, the, the better it is for them. Uh, so, uh, but at the same time, you, you can't control the demonic. You, you cannot control the, the agency of demons. You can make a deal, you can make a covenant and you can give certain rights up, but the demons are so astute and and so intelligent uh, that they're going to be go that they, they know how to go beyond that deal and ensnare you like a, sp a spider ensnares a, 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 a one of its preys in in a, in a web okay this is interesting because sometimes in the church people get this idea that okay i know about demons now i'm going to go fight some demons but of course uh, especially solemn exorcisms and really any sacramental exorcism at all should be done by a priest. Um, but also, I was reading in the book that you, in your trade, if you want to call it that, um, Father Amorth talked about 20 rules of exorcism, 21 rules of exorcism. I don't know if this is an official thing, but it was sort of he was talking about the protocol that he would follow in order to do things properly, in order to not make things worse, not you know receive the problems himself, etc. Perhaps you want to elaborate on um, the sort of modus operandi that an exorcist typically would follow in order to do this work. Yeah, so uh, so those 21 rules that Father Amorth is talking about, uh, they're what's called the pre-no-tanda. They're, they're the rules laid out within the ritual for exorcism. Um, and so it gives the exorcist guidelines. And in fact, the first teaching that he had from his teacher was he was handed a copy of the ritual and he said, go learn these rules and, and don't come back until you have them memorized. Uh, so uh, so that's what, in, in fact, he did. And he said, these, mm. these rules are going to guide you. Now, uh, you know, what are the rules? Well, the first one is, uh, it says that uh, a 
an exorcist is a priest who has been selected uh, because of his maturity and piety and good sense. Uh, so that, of course, is going to be um, when an exorcist uh, hears that he's always going to think he's unworthy. I mean, to, to, right. when you see a criteria like that, you think, well, look, I, I don't fit that description. Uh, but uh, the church is not saying the most prudent, the most pious, the most saintly, if you will, or holy. Um, they're just looking for for someone who is is engaged in that struggle to be holiness in, and engaged in a genuine way. And that's who you want, because the, the last thing you want is for somebody who is living a sinful life to attempt to engage the devil. Because right. really what's happening in, in that moment when you're confronting the devil is you're confronting the prince of this world. But if you belong to his world, if he has claim over you because of sin that you have, unconfessed sin, unrepentant sin, well, you're walking up to your master and you're saying to him, I'm the boss, obey me. Well, he's going to beat the hell out of you. I mean, what what master is ever going to take an insubordination from a peon that he owns? I mean, then... In no society, culture, or circumstance uh, would we accept anything less than a retaliation on the part of the master. And that's exactly what's going to happen. In fact, if a priest goes into an exorcism having sin on his soul, mortal sin, he will become possessed himself. And, that, and, and, and he's going to be, because the priest himself, he's going to be the Easter egg that the devil wants. Because if he can infest the priest then he can, he can have incredible damage and influence on a great many people, all right? When you have an evil priest, uh, you know, yeah. one has to question, are any of his baptisms valid? Are any of his masses valid? So you can have the external actions still there, but in every one of the sacraments, you need the priest to have the intention to perform what the church does. Well, if, that's, if, if the devil's at the controls, he's not going to, right? So... You have people then who think their babies are baptized, and guess what? They're not. That happened. So, this is fascinating, Father, because, um, well, recently there was the, in the Diocese of uh, Kansas City, for reasons of the material, the bishop put out a letter saying that there had been many invalid masses, sadly. Um, but you're talking about the internal. So, these priests, presumably in this diocese, they were saying the right words. Uh, and maybe the intention was fine, but they had used the improper wines with additives and whatever it was. Um, okay, because this is very fascinating, because, you know, I'm one of those people they like to call traditionalist. And sometimes, you know, I'll say things like, well, you know, the intention is really important and stuff. They, oh, you're just being one of those rad trads. But you're saying that um, this level of evil that a priest could get mixed up with could actually lead to him having an improper intention internally. Is that what you're saying? Well, in the case of a possession, in the you, case of you don't possession, have control okay. of your person. Ah, so the, okay. the devil is not the controls. So um, you, your body is being used. Uh, so uh, the, the, the devil, if he is celebrating mass or, or performing the gestures that look like mass, he sure as heck exists, is not going to have the intention. And, and he, he couldn't confect mass anyway because he's not I a see. priest. But it looks like, you know, hey, well, I'm at church for 11 a.m. mass uh, like I am every Sunday. Well, 
uh, guess what? There is no mass today. Although it looks like there is, there isn't. Uh, and this, this is, mm. th this is the, the danger when there is a possession involving a priest. So the rules of the Prenotanda uh, have guide, guidelines that are non-negotiable that are meant to steer priests away from getting themselves in trouble like this. The, the Prenotanda also gives the, the, um, the, the, the criteria or the, the signs that indicate demonic possession. And, and essentially they come down to three. One is knowledge of unknown languages. So in the victim, the victim is exhibiting um, the use and facility with a language that he or she has never been taught. So I'm not talking about using uh, one or two words or maybe even several phrases, but I, being able to converse in the language with perfect grammar. Uh, secondly, knowledge of hidden and distant events right? or occult knowledge, uh, the ability to know things about you, for example. Uh, so so if you're, you're confronting a possessed person and that person starts reaming off details of that embarrassing event that happened to you at your 13th birthday party. And there's just no way that this individual could know that. Uh, and the third is superhuman strength. So uh, a, a strength. Mm that is beyond the ability of the, the individual. So for example, uh, a 100 pound woman ordinarily cannot throw a 300 pound man across the room. So if that occurs, you have to exit the natural and enter into the preternatural uh, to provide an explanation for that. Uh, the ritual also gives other indications. So those are the grand signs, but other, other signs will be an extreme aversion to religious objects. Uh, okay. Now, that is not included as a fourth sign per se, simply because, uh, well, it's the, the others, if they exist, automatically indicate uh, that something beyond the natural is present. Right. Um, if you bring to a possessed person or somebody faking possession, an image of the Blessed Mother, well, they're going to react. Both of those people are going to react. Right. So, so. Um, that's not, it's not a fourth sign, but it is an indicator of possession nonetheless, because there's going to be that aversion. And then there's the evidence as a whole. Uh, so the, 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 the state of behavior exhibited by the alleged victim that the exorcist has to then make an assessment and make, make a professional decision. Look, I, I believe I'm encountering the, the devil here, and these are the reasons why I believe it is so. Uh, and now, boom! I I need to engage in in um, in combat using the church's ritual against him. Okay, so this is the last thing I wanted to ask, Father, if we could. Um, thank you for your time, by the way. This I know you're kind of fitting this in, and um, so this is a uh, one of the I don't know transcriptions, I guess, from I think it was his first exorcism. And I want to end on this because I think you can give us some words of um, you know hope and encouragement about. Um, when people hear all these things, they know they can be spiritually protected and has to do with Our Lady. So um, this is uh, from the transcription of the first exorcism, I think, in Father Amorth's life. And it says, through his voice, Satan was speaking to me. He spat out insults, blasphemies, accusations and threats. Then at a certain point, he said to me, priest, go away. Leave me alone. You go away. I responded to him. Priest, priest, go away. I can do nothing against you. And he said, tell me in the name of Christ, why can you not do anything? And the devil said to him, because you are too protected by Our Lady. Your Lady with her mantle surrounds you and I cannot reach you.
perhaps we could end on just the importance of Marian devotion and protection in the life of a Catholic. Yeah, sure. So Our Lady, of course, is is a uh, is is God's most faithful and most true instrument. Uh, she is the only creature that was ever completely 100% devoted to God, to His Word, to His commands. And so, in a sense, she's the exact opposite of Satan. Uh, so her presence is a weapon against him. And one of the diagnostics I use to determine whether somebody is really fully liberated is I have the victim recite the Hail Mary. Okay. Because if the devil is present in there, there is no way he is going to allow that to happen. He will never engage in that himself. He might, might engage the Our Father. But Our Lady mm. is a person he hates even more than God because she usurped his place and occupies it now in heaven. Wow, that's really special. I've got, you can't see them on screen, but I've got my Fatima, I've got my early of Guadalupe statue, I've got my St. Joseph and the Child Jesus, and I always look at those when I'm working uh, just to be reminded. Well, we had technical difficulties at the beginning and we made it through. And I think this is often the case when you're going to talk about the devil on the internet. So I should have assumed that. But uh, I was going to ask you to start with a prayer at the beginning. But because of the technical difficulties, we got sidetracked and just sort of rolled into it. Could you please lead us in a prayer to end the show, Father? Sure. Yeah. So may Almighty God bless you and, and bless your viewers all and, and their family members and all those whom they love. And may Our Lady always be your protector. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Father. And everyone, please check out Father's podcast, The Exorcist Files. You can find that on, I'm assuming, all the major podcast platforms. Um, yeah. And, and they can uh, also go to the, the website, exorcistfiles.tv, and that will show you how to access it. Excellent. And in the link to the video, ladies and gentlemen, you can find my books, and you can also find this book on Father Gabriel Amorth. Well, thank you, Father. And as always, ladies and gentlemen, please let me know what you think in the comments. This has been the Kennedy Report. Until next time, God bless.